Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... See, when we speak to consumers, we say that they are concerned. We have a lot of interest in our campaign, and recently we ran a poll and we see that um, you know, 90% of consumers are really concerned about worker safety... It's Black Friday and the retailers both online and bricks and mortar are in hyper-sales mode. Whilst this is great for the retailers, Oxfam say that very little of the money spent actually gets to workers in countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam. But first, radio in Australia is now 100 years old. The first station broadcasting in the country was Sydney's 2SB, which became 2BL, then 702, and now ABC Radio Sydney. There were great celebrations yesterday with Sarah McDonald's ABC Morning Program being broadcast live from the New South Wales State Library Auditorium. It opened with a live rendition of the 1920s Charleston from 2SER's Greg Poppleton, and I asked Sarah McDonald just what it was like to do her program with a live audience. It's always great to have a live audience in front of you. It's a very different vibe because you're very aware that the biggest audience is the one listening at home or in their cars or walking the dog or whatever, but you've got the live audience in front of you too. So you've sort of got two very different sensibilities. But there was just so much love in the room because they were our regular and most passionate listeners who were there. And it was really fabulous. It was great to sort of have them see what happens in the background of radio when things are lining up and musicians were warming up and all that kind of thing Um, and it was just a terrific event it really was a fabulous like it's a hundred years it's a birthday we need to celebrate these kind of things it's pretty amazing thing when you think about that a technology can still be running a hundred years on Do do you think people will be listening to radio in another hundred years Well, I don't know in what format, but look, you know, we had people ringing up talking about the crystal in the set and they couldn't knock the set of the crystal set radio they had or it'd go off and the old radios that we used to have. A lot of people listen on their apps now, on their phones. That's certainly how I listen to the radio. So I think it'll be in some form, but of course the technology changes, but I don't think the principles change. I don't know whether John Doyle's too keen about the app. Didn't he say that it was a bit rubbish? (laughs) He he thought the app was rubbish. I was like, I'll go talk to the technicians. I mean, I don't have any problem with it. It works perfectly to me. It might be in his managing of it, John. Could be. (laughs) Um, And how was it in interviewing the Prime Minister? I mean, you had Sally Lone there as well, and she was saying that she wasn't looking for a gotcha moment when she interviewed John Howard. Would you have taken a gotcha opportunity if it had arisen? Of course I would. I mean, you, you don't have to look for them all the time, and I think that can be a bit glib and you know, too easy and a bit boring listening in journalism. But you can certainly have an interesting interview and still encourage a moment that is great that you can use. It was a sort of chat which was a celebration of radio. So I just asked him about his experience of radio, what he grew up listening to, what his mum listened to. He talked about that. He talked about Double J and how instrumental he was in getting Double J to Triple J and out into the regions, which was really so very important for kids living in regional Australia and certainly was for so many people I know. So it was an interesting conversation too about misinformation and disinformation and uh, and how radio is immediate. He feels his voice is 
and his words don't get distorted as much as, as something like a simple meme can do. So it kind of varied. But, yeah, I tried to get a little bit of out of him of, you know, who our yeah. next chair is going to be. That's he right, yes. The, <laughs> he didn't take the bait, but you've got to give it a whirl, don't you? got to give you? it a go. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, was it stressful, uh, the build-up of having the Prime Minister coming in, or, or was it more stressful interviewing Ida Butra as your boss, for example? <laughs> You know what? It was possibly a little bit more stressful interviewing the boss. Yes, in some ways, perhaps. She's the outgoing chair of the ABC, but uh, it was wonderful to have her. And I hadn't met her before, so slightly intimidating. I feel like we kind of had the Prime Minister, we had the Queen of the ABC, and then we finished up with the King, which was Jonathan Diggins (laughs) from the Wolf Review, giving us the 100-year telegram. So we... We had all the royalty and all the all the bigwigs involved. A right royal broadcast. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and you had so many uh, luminaries from the ABC from the, from the past and and the present, I suppose, as well. Were you worried at some point because they're all they're all very successful broadcasters? Are you worried at some point that they might take over the show? Well, we let James O'Loughlin take over the show. We, he he wanted. We thought rather than just come in and talk about the quiz and Norman, we thought, hey, how about you just do a quiz? So we actually did let him take over, and I walked over to another microphone and we did a little quiz just for fun, just to mix things up and the sound of it. So that's all right. No, everybody knows how to actually. The great thing about radio people is they know how to perform. They know how to do something quickly. They can articulate things really quickly. And everybody stepped up and did what we asked them to do. And But also came out with some things that were unexpected too, which is all the fun of live radio. Well, I, I think it was amazing that you were able to keep on to the messages as well as uh, looking left and right because you had people either side of you, didn't you, doing uh, <laughs> doing things. You, know, you had the Wharf Review, the Wharf Review yes. guys there warming up on one side yes. and then you had the, <laughs> the radio hosts on the other side and then, you know, Albo yeah. waltzes in and uh, there, there's a lot to keep going. But you still keep those text messages because that's the audience, isn't it? Well, that's right. And, and yeah, my producer was putting up those. I didn't have access to the text line. But certainly the Wharf Review were warming up as we were talking. I could kind of hear them in my headphones in the background. And Tim Friedman was doing that too before he did Love This City oh, because yes, they've got brilliant. a check. So there was a lot involved in the background. But it was it was very funny, actually. A lot of the listeners come out to me saying, oh, now you like to see that everything that goes on behind a radio show, it's not just as simple as stepping up and getting into a microphone for an event like that, there was certainly a lot going on. Well, Sarah McDonald, you got it all together. You kept it going and it worked like a well-oiled machine and I think you did a marvellous job. So congratulations. Congratulations to the ABC too for the 100 years. Thank you so much, Roderick. And guess where I did my first radio show? To SCR. Sarah McDonald, ABC Radio Sydney morning host, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers, and you're listening to The Wire, around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Hi, I'm Ray Martin. You're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay well. This week saw scenes which could have been drawn from the TV series Succession with the extraordinary firing and rehiring of OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, highlighting the tensions between ethical and commercial imperatives that plague the development of the artificial intelligence. Stephen Hill asked Scientia Professor Toby Walsh from the University of New South Wales what these events mean for the future directions of AI. 
It was set up a few years ago, in part by Elon Musk and Sam Altman, the current CEO. Elon Musk, he's no longer involved. He's now gone and set up his own rival AI company, XAI, because Elon Musk's concern was that AI was going to be captured by the big tech giants, the Googles and the Microsofts of the world. Ultimately, we're going to build what's called AGI, artificial general intelligence, AI that's as smart or smarter than humans. Elon Musk felt that it should be done for humanity's benefit. And so the two founding principles of OpenAI were that they would do it in an open way, share it with the world, and share the profits with the world. Surprisingly, perhaps a little bit worryingly, it's now neither of those things. It's neither open. It's like trying to understand what's happening in the election of the of the Pope of the Vatican, trying to read the smoke signals. And it morphed into this strange dual structure where you had a for-profit company, on top of which you had this not-for-profit, at the board of which Sam Ortman was in and was fired spectacularly on Friday last week. Um, now he's been rehired and returned, and the not-for-profit board has been replaced. And so it seems now that it's become largely a for-profit enterprise. Although I suspect that's going to be inevitable when first Microsoft invested a billion dollars and then another $10 billion with those large sums of money. It was hard for it to really still be a, a not-for-profit. Do you think that the current board tussles were based on this sort of conflict between scientific and commercial imperatives? Well, the official reason that he was fired, according to the board, was that he wasn't entirely candid with the board. Now, I expect that's legal speak for he lied to the board. And I think the little I know about being a CEO is but lying to your board is probably a very bad idea. What they didn't think through was that he had immense loyalty amongst the staff. Over 90% of them threatened to resign go and work with Microsoft. It, it turned out that Sam Orman played the situation very well. I'm proud. It seems to be he's a really good master manipulator of people. And he's come back, and now it's the board who have been fired. According to Wired, the board shakeup has resulted in two directors involved in the effective altruism movement being removed. And it's involved the, also the introduction of Larry Summers, very much an establishment figure in venture capitalism. Does this augur for OpenAI adopting more of the move fast, break things ethos of Silicon Valley? I think very much the case. And indeed, that was some of the concerns that precipitated the board's reaction. Not as you say, there were two effective altruists on the board who worried about whether they were going about developing AI in a truly safe, cautious, and methodical way. And Sam definitely is a, someone who moves very fast. It does leave the fundamental question, the thing that we should be somewhat worried about, which is that there's no transparency in what's going on. It's not open, which was supposed to be their mission. And these tech companies have been saying for years now that they need to be regulated. And I think this demonstrates if we're not sure what's going on, that we really should be thinking carefully about what are the guardrails that this industry works in so that they are allied with the public good. Are there concerns that what we have at the moment, that self-regulation is not enough, that we need a lot more in the way of legislation? A hundred percent. I mean, I think there was a time a decade or two back where regulation would have stifled innovation. But now we're seeing natural monopolies emerge. It's becoming increasingly clear that regulation would not only be possible, but but necessary. Um, and indeed, I would talk to friends of mine who work at some of these tech companies, and they will say um, quietly over a beer, 
we would welcome some regulation. At the moment, it's a race to the bottom. They do things not because they choose to do them, but because their competitors are going to do them. Actually, I'm fearful that if we don't regulate it, it will now stifle innovation, but we'll have a tech backlash. Consumers will turn against the possible benefits that this sector could bring. Also, to actually be a developer in AI, you actually require billions of dollars. Does this mean that all the decisions around AI are basically being decided by a very limited percentage of the, the world's population? Yeah, the tech bros in Silicon Valley who are making many of these choices. You know, ultimately, who are going to be the big winners. It's going to be Microsoft and Google because it's, it's not just an innovation problem here. But there's a delivery problem. People forget. We take it for granted that we can type stuff into our phones or our computers and get an instant response, forgetting the huge, great infrastructure that has been built to give us that immediacy, the billions of dollars that spent on data centers, the undersea fiber optic cables. There's only a handful of companies. That's Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Alibaba, all those tech giants. And so they're going to either form partnerships with the startups who develop it or they're going to acquire them. Scientific Professor Toby Walsh from the University of New South Wales speaking there with Stephen Hill. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. In the most recent HSC exams, it was reported that students were using nicotine patches to help them deal with not being able to vape during exams. Ben Tompkins asked Belinda Volkov, clinical director from the Sydney Drug Education and Counselling Centre, how bad nicotine patches were for students' health. We're very unclear about, you know, how many people are actually got a full nicotine dependence And there's a difference between when someone's using casually to somebody actually using in a dependent daily way. And what we are seeing with some of the vaping is that young people are developing dependence on nicotine. So what we normally do, if they're using NRT patches in studies, in exams, because um, nicotine actually kicks in, the, the withdrawal kicks in very, very quickly. That's why people tend to, even with smokers, people will regularly use. Now, NRT is an effective way to administer nicotine um, in a in a less harmful way. So if somebody is actually saying, well, I've got a nicotine dependence, I need to sit through these exams, and they're willing to use a nicotine patch, well, that's actually a good thing because what we don't want is them to have the distraction of withdrawal um, when they're in that position. I mean, dependence isn't something we punish, it's something we treat. The, the issue is if you don't have a big nicotine dependence and you use a patch and the patch is not the right level of nicotine. You'll either under-treat it or over-treat it. So if you put a nicotine patch on because you just want to be awake during the exam, it's going to make you feel sick. You know, most people as smokers, if they if they smoke nicotine too much, they feel nauseated, a bit dizzy. So if you're just slapping a patch on and you don't have a dependence, it'll make you feel unwell. Do you think that more people are vaping because they think it's better than smoking or safer, maybe? Yeah, it's a really, there's the polarised debate, right? So in in the UK, their their posters will be up saying it's 95% less harmful, but that's regulated vapes. They are regulated. 
the ones that are not regulated are the ones that young people are more likely to use. They're going to have higher nicotine content and therefore they're more likely to develop dependence. I mean, dependence isn't one hit you're hooked. I think we've got to really get rid of that mythology. If a young person is actually using vapes and they're under 18 and they're doing it regularly, that for me is a red flag that something else is going on for them because drug use isn't just about being chemically hijacked. There's a, there's a relationship with the drug use. And most young people that we work with in treatment are there because they've got co-occurring mental health stuff at the same time. There's currently a significant amount of education in the New South Wales curriculum on drugs and alcohol. What more education could be done in schools around this development? And also, do you think this is, a, this is reflective of the curriculum? We just want to make sure that we don't stigmatise and ostracise people that may require treatment. In terms of preventative stuff, I think the most important thing is that the evidence is clear. It's very hard, Ben, to have these discussions without morality. So people come from this kind of moral, they shouldn't do it, which really, if that worked, I seriously wouldn't need my job. So preventative stuff is important. We want to talk that we don't want people putting things in their lungs if they don't, if they haven't had a tobacco nicotine addiction. But we also want to be really mindful in the way we pitch it. And sometimes when it gets pitched in a way that has what I call a shockumentary style, that's when we get concerned because it ostracizes the people we want to speak to. So we want to make sure that people are getting the right information and then accessing treatment when they need it. What advice would you give to students to seek help, but also to parents to learn more about how Mm -hmm. to keep their kids safe? So for young people, if anybody is actually experiencing dependence and even if they don't want to quit, but they want to actually reduce or like anything that is a goal for them that is going to improve health, we would encourage them to seek out support. They can speak to Quitline. There's a lot of different tobacco-related services that now talk about vaping. For parents, that's actually more important, actually. But for parents, it's very about... um, trying not to jump on the bandwagon of this is really bad, this is really bad, and recognising that most people grow out of it. I mean, most people grow out of drug use generally, Ben. They they really do. You're only dealing with that kind of 10 to 15% that may go on to have higher levels of addiction. It's about them accessing information, talking to drug and alcohol services, not getting into this space of we have to stop them. We need to be curious. So it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happening for you. Belinda Volkov, Clinical Director of the Sydney Drug Education and Counselling Centre, speaking there with Ben Tompkins. Is the selling season with Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales. The Australian Retailers Association has forecasted a $6.3 billion sales figure, accounting for more than a quarter of all holiday purchases this year. However, concerns were raised that only a small percentage of these profits go to the workers who make the garments in the apparel industry. 
James Montemayor asked Neela Crawley from Oxfam what they had noticed about wages for workers who manufactured apparel. Oxfam has worked on labour rights for a number of years, uh, the last five years on our What She Makes campaign. And what we see is that the women who make our clothes, working um, overseas, manufacturing clothes for Australian consumers, are not paid enough to live on. Consistently, workers are having to go without essentials, um, despite working full-time hours and and sometimes overtime. Why do you think that only a small percentage of profits go to these workers? When we look at the percentages of um, uh, the price of an item of clothing and where that's going. It's going, of course, to all different places. It's going to executive wages. Um, obviously, um, they can sometimes be outrageous. It's also going to things like logistics, marketing, retail staff here in Australia, you know, a number of places. And we understand that that's complex and something to get right. But what we also know is that the people who make our clothes are only getting 4% and that's not enough um, to cover a living wage and that actually you could make quite a small increase to that and that would make a huge difference to, to those workers and their families. It would be enough for them to lift themselves out of poverty and for people to have enough nutritious food or for their children to go to school. And we've also seen in Australia, if I could just add, um, Profits in the fashion industry were $2 billion this year, twice as high as it was last year. So there, there are profits in the industry. There's, there's additional funds that could be put towards workers' wages. Why aren't Aussie consumers concerned that they aren't getting a fair go? Yeah, look, I think we see when we speak to consumers, we see that they are concerned. We have a lot of interest in our campaign and recently we ran a poll and we see that um, you know, 90% of consumers are really concerned about worker safety um, and three quarters um, of consumers would actually pay more for clothes if they could be guaranteed that that additional money was going directly to the workers who made them. So consumers do care. For consumers, it's a really complex space to navigate, to figure out, you know, um, which item of clothing is more ethical than the other, which one can I be sure that... Um, workers are being paid well. And we see that reflected in 70% of consumers feeling that they're being misled by the brands that they're buying clothes from. So I think there's a bigger space for some support with government regulation. And there's certainly a bigger space for brands to be more transparent with their consumers about where their clothes are made and about workers' wages. Is it advantageous that brands are ethical and more honest? Well, it's certainly advantageous to the people who are making our clothes and living in poverty. And I mean, I can give an example of a worker, Sabina, who's featured in our case study, who half of her wage goes to her disabled son. She's a she's a single mother, leaving her with only half of her wage to cover her room, food and medicines, which she cannot every month. So it's certainly beneficial and that there'll be people all over the world who can afford proper health care and nutritious food. Another reason it's beneficial is we know consumers care 100%. And I would say the third reason is this is not going to be the way it is forever. We know something has to change and we know that government regulation, you know, will come. There will come a day when this won't be voluntary, when we won't stand for these types of poverty wages anymore. So it's great for brands to get on the front foot and start implementing these changes now. How do we get a um, fair wage for these workers? It's, it's multi-pronged. Oxfam's been taking an approach of direct advocacy to brands, 
That's a great thing that we can do as an Australian-based organisation. It's also a wonderful thing consumers can do. So we advocate for um, you just contacting your favourite brand, not boycotting because, you know, that can impact the um, businesses and the the work that these um, workers um, get. So we never advocate boycotts, but contact your favourite brand. Let them know that you care. Let them know you want to see an increase in wages. Ask them what they're doing about it. Be polite. It is a selling season at the moment. Um, it's with Black Friday sales and Cyber Monday sales as well. Um, what do shop? What can shoppers be aware of? Yeah, look, I would um, again just say making sure that the brands that you're buying from um, understand that it's important for you. So I think something that's really powerful when we're advocating to brands is to know real consumers care. So I would say, you know, pop on their social media, say, hey brand i just bought this great t-shirt of yours i love it the color's great fits good are you paying your workers a living wage can you tell me what you're doing about that because the more they hear from consumers the more it becomes part of the conversation and the more their boards and their management need to take notice nina crowley from oxfam australia speaking there with james montemayor And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcasts around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music